0: Peace, we Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Today we have a fascinating episode that combines the macro and the micro. Nimble Partners founder John Burbank and partner Ken Wallace come on the show to discuss both the nuances and intricacies of the markets and early stage venture. Nimble Partners is a technology investment platform that invests into early stage fund managers through their manager selection program, as well as direct and co-investments into breakout performers from their VC fund manager relationships. John and Ken have had illustrious careers in both public markets and private markets, investing in many of the biggest technology trends and many top early stage managers over the past 15 years. John was a top macro investor from founding Passport Capital in 2000, where he was amongst the best hedge fund managers of his time. He's been investing into early stage fund managers for the past decade. As a longtime macro investor, he's consistently focused on sectors and investments where technology can be disruptive and accelerate change. He's also an investor in the Golden State Warriors, the championship-winning NBA team. Ken joined John to build Nimble after a stellar career at Industry Ventures, backing a number of emerging managers, and most notably, Chris Saka's first-time Lowercase Capital Fund, which had over 212x returns, was amongst the best-performing venture funds in history. At Industry Ventures, he specialized in hybrid fund-of-fund strategies, originating, valuing, and managing primary fund commitments early secondary LP investments and direct co-investments. We had a fascinating conversation that spanned how macro impacts venture capital, how the framework that John and Ken use to evaluate technology trends and emerging managers impacts the way that they invest, how the portfolio manager model can be applied to venture capital, how information is a huge edge, and why duration is the most important thing an investor can have. Thanks, John and Ken, for coming on the Alco's mainstream podcast to share your wisdom. John, Ken, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you.
0: Well, pleasure to have you. Fascinating backgrounds that you both have, both in prior lives and what you're doing now and how that informs what you're doing now. So I'd love to start with the the partnership that you two have formed. You come from different backgrounds. John, you grew up in the hedge fund world. Ken, you grew up in the venture world. So fascinated by... How you'd say your philosophies on investing into VC funds and companies, which you do now at Nimble Partners, differ, but also have complementary benefits based on your different backgrounds and vantage
2: points? Well, in the hedge fund world, I was really concerned with big changes, big, generally macro changes that the market didn't uh, anticipate or understand, as well as significant new things. A lot of hedge funds are more regression to the mean strategies and clearly thinking is generally more regression to the mean. What I was trying to do was the opposite of identify big new areas that mattered, And actually that lends itself much better to venture investing. The reason that we did come together was in 2011, I saw the end of world growth, the intensity of world growth driven by China and being in San Francisco for the the previous 20 years, made me believe that we were entering a a different world where technology costs were constantly falling and the best human capital in the world, which San Francisco clearly had accumulated, was going to be the winner in all kinds of forms. So I started personally investing in early stage funds and much more in startups in order to inform myself validate that hypothesis.
1: And I'd say the reason that we're working together is because our philosophies are very similar. I started investing in venture funds 20 years ago at a big wealth management firm uh, in New York. We had access to a lot of the top brand name funds who were all really a lot smaller than they were today. And what I saw 2003 to 2006 was that these funds were starting to get a lot bigger. And that meant that they were doing more later stage investing and really not investing as much in true startup venture capital, which is what they had been doing for the previous 20 years. What you saw was this new class of micro VC funds that were starting to emerge from angel groups or people spinning out of those large funds. I became really interested and in wanted to focus on those. So that's what I spent the next 12 years of my career doing between 2008 and 2020 is focusing on those new emerging seed funds, emerging managers focused on the very early stage of venture capital. And when John and I met he shared the managers that he'd been backing, and I looked at the ones that i have been backing. There was a lot of overlap. I'd say the philosophy that we've been investing behind is really trying to find people who have special access to important and hard-to-crack-into networks. These people can go about getting access to those networks in various ways. One is through sector specialization. One is through working in those networks. And another is just being important and helpful to the people that are in those networks. Our whole philosophy is trying to find new emerging managers that invest at the very beginning of company formation with access to those special networks. Some stories like we were both racing to back Pagemon and Mar at Pair Ventures first. I remember meeting them when they were just beginning to form their fund and come to find out that John was in the same timeframe. Just a lot of similarities in terms of philosophy. So that's why I think we're really excited to work together.
0: It sounds like in a nutshell, it's really about information asymmetry. Both of the industries that you've been in are about that. And you've found different ways to use that as a way to invest for an advantage. How do you think about top-down? So macro uh, impacting the the startup world? Because to your point, John, big changes or big new areas that matter are what drive real change and big outcomes in many cases. And, that, and that's kind of to some extent bottoms up, right? You can pick the best companies, whether or not there's a macro impact to it, but there also can be a macro effect from investing in the right markets or behind the right trends. So how do you think about top-down investing but then also the bottoms-up aspect of venture?
2: I'd say since Ken and I started working together, there's probably never been more dramatic macro events in such a short period of time. Since 2020, we've had massive slowdown, massive liquidity acceleration, broad global effects of this lockdown, and then the Fed hiking rates, realizing it had created lots of inflation and government allocating way too much to the individuals and the economy. My opinion is we've left the world that we were in after the financial crisis, where central banks just kept providing more and more liquidity. One thing that did actually was it enabled longer-term non-profitable companies to raise more and more amounts of money. Also, the Fed was going to do all the work. Congress didn't have to do much work. Now we're in a different environment where... It looks like um, government is going to be spending a lot more money than we're traditionally used to. It's going to be controlling, I'd say, the economy more. Uh, there's going to, there's a big fight politically, and who knows how long it's going to last, but I'd say quite a while. Companies are going to have to adjust to this new environment. Marginal companies are no longer going to work. W- the winners are going to work. <laughs> That's the main thing. It is not like this is the end of venture capital. The winners are going to win. The the valuations, your access to them, and where to find those winners is the question.
0: On that point, has your strategy changed in the light of what's happened in the past few years with these big macro changes?
2: I would say that there are an area of interest like government-related tech. I've been following this for quite a while. Anything that has a sizable GDP percentage of the economy is an area that tech is going to benefit from, impact, and develop you know, leadership into. Uh, it seems to be government is uh, is now uh, an area that was disdained by a lot of Silicon Valley, partly politically, partly Washington, D.C. is far away, partly there's all these other things. Now I'd say it's actually people realizing it's a growth area. It's endorsed. There's dramatic need, partly because of China, probably because of space, probably because of Companies like Andrel that are showing fast success. Venture constantly changes. Tech constantly changes. The the wrong thing to do is to try to copy and to look back and emulate. The the right thing is to anticipate and see what new areas are going to open up. And obviously, it's fuzzy and it's risk taking and whatever. But fintech was that 10, 12 years ago. Government is that in the last couple of years. It's going to have a huge future to it because the percentage impact is enormous and so
1: tactically from a tops down perspective we'll identify these new emerging trends that are maybe five ten years out from bearing fruit we want to make sure that we have managers who are experts within those trends and not just new to the idea that companies might be formed in these areas these are true operational experts that have backed companies before or been entrepreneurs or have worked at big companies where they built products within these large macro trends. So true sector experts focus on these new emerging areas. Then what we can do is, is learn as they start making investments, we meet their portfolio companies, meet the founders. And as companies start to emerge, we get closer to those and we can start investing directly into the breakout winners within those funds. That's tactically how we affect these tops down you know, macro approaches.
0: And Ken, how do you think about the evolution of early stage venture and emerging manager venture, where you were working on this for quite some time professionally at industry ventures, were early onto this trend. How do you think about the current macro environment changing the way that, A, you have to invest, and B, which types of managers might be successful?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we've seen a proliferation of new emerging managers. The number of funds, the number of managers that have been formed in the last 15 years is just astronomical. And so given the valuations that we saw in back half of 2021 and 2020, uh, everybody looks good, so it's really hard to pick through the ones that will have true performance. So what we focused on then is not really worrying about backing everybody or making sure that we back the the best one. We want to back people who have very high quality returns, but also the ones that we can develop really strong relationships with because that's almost more important to our strategy. Of course, return is very important on the fund side, but really the most important thing for us is that we can work with these groups so that we can invest with them and support their businesses by working with them on their pro rata rights and follow on rounds or or even leading uh, future rounds that they can uh, increase their ownership. We only have a handful of slots. We we wanna back the existing managers that we have that are performing. And, And so when we think about backing new managers, they have to fill some kind of sector expertise in an area that we want to continue investing in, but also ones that are going to work with us on a really close uh, basis to affect our direct investment platform.
0: And then how do you think about the concept of understanding of the macro environment for the venture investor? How important is that for them in terms of their ability to pick companies well, get in at the right entry points, think about what exits might look like based on true multiples. I think obviously past year has shown that the the company's exit value is actually dependent on things that happen at more of a macro level. So how do you think about a manager's understanding of macro or financial services more broadly and how that works when you think about investing in and developing emerging managers?
1: Yeah, so for us, I really don't put a lot of emphasis on an early stage manager's ability to forecast an exit for a company. That's kind of our job, right? So really their job is to uh, attract the best entrepreneurs within their given sectors and be able to partner with those entrepreneurs to build enduring and lasting businesses. And if they can do that and their funds are appropriately sized, they get the right ownership, the returns will take care of themselves companies can choose their exit windows, especially if they're enduring companies. And, and maybe the right answer, some funds are experimenting with a evergreen approach or continuation vehicles, and some GPs don't want to exit. And so that's maybe our job is to figure out when the right exit for us is. But an early stage manager's job should be around entering, accessing, and building these enduring businesses.
0: And John, on the topic of underwriting and evaluating talent at the investor level. You've seen this from a slightly different vantage point in the hedge fund world. I'm fascinated by the way you've constructed Nimble because in a sense, from the outside looking in, it could be seen as like a PM model or portfolio manager model, right? You're backing sector experts in a sense, or specific skill sets and getting best ideas, best access in terms of your exposure. How do you think about that concept and the way that you evaluated talent in your prior life and applying that to what you're doing today? I
2: saw that early on. I thought originally coming from the the capital markets and hedge fund world, I thought, how much value could I really add? I was just interested in validating this human capital hypothesis. Actually, there's a lot to add. It's a surprising amount to add, but you have to spend time in it to understand how it's different, obviously. so Actually, it's a lot more effective in the venture world than the public world. The, the reason I say that because in the public world, things are, start off being far more efficiently priced. A, a lot of what happens in public is just parsing data and then making decisions off of data. What's happening here is you're having access, because you're aware and understanding of a sector and a, and a group of people and things that have worked or not, speaking to a sector expert who, who's in our fund, they, they have a lot more value to tell us, oh, no, that model didn't work. Oh, no, this this founder we know is this way or that way. There, those are, that's data you cannot search for, and it's not well known. We know there is tremendous longer-term alpha in public markets. And, yes, there are sector experts who can generate that. But, my God, the time it saves for us to speak to our ed tech manager or fintech manager where we float a new idea, a new company, and it, like the, the ability for them to just say, no, that doesn't work, or, no, you should speak to this person It's so effective, so valuable.
0: Taking this from top down, going macro to micro, and the concept of this idea of the PM model within venture capital, if we think about some of the top-down industry trends, and I want to hear both of your perspectives on this, because I think you'll both have really interesting vantage points. But the evolution of venture has kind of been, the big platforms are becoming bigger, are multi-strategy, multi-stage, maybe even multi-product. And then you have a lot of smaller managers who may be very very focused on a specific area, stage of the market, sector, et cetera. How do you think about the concept of the PM model when it comes to the evolution of venture capital as a business model?
2: I guess I'd say, you no, know, originally it was a, a place, Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road, and that took you know, several decades. Entrepreneurs essentially were pooled in that area and knew where to go to find capital and the venture guys didn't have to travel, didn't have to do a whole lot. But now, obviously, that's changed. We have companies formed all over the place. You have pools of capital all over the place. In fact, there's, there's just lots of competition. What we see is that they're either big brands with, with ability to raise lots of capital, or at the other end, you have people trying to be differentiated with something that they can contribute. Just being in Palo Alto no longer is is enough of a differentiator. It it was fine 10 years ago and and more, but I think it's really the job of us to put those things together to create that PM model. Maybe Sequoia has uh, experts in different sectors. They sort of pride themselves on being involved in lots of different things. In fact, one of the things that we learned from like Learn Capital, our ed tech manager, is how so many of these well-known investors at these big brands had a edtech company that they backed but they really didn't understand the sector because how could they if they didn't spend most of their time doing it whereas learn has had far more billion dollar outcomes than any of these brands and edtech's actually 5% percent of the economy in the United States 5-6%. I mean it's a huge area and none of these brands have you know the expertise So, I think it's fairly for us to put those things together and create that PM model.
0: And, Ken, on that point, do you feel that venture is different than other parts of private markets, say private equity, where the Blackstones, KKRs, Carlyles may build or buy teams and put them on their platform? And size and scale does matter in a lot of those cases. But is venture different in your mind where? those managers, John, that you mentioned that are experts at their specific craft or sector or category are going to be the ones who stay independent, maybe stay smaller from an AUM perspective, but that's how they feel they generate alpha. Is there kind of a, a talent question that you've sought to answer, Ken, as you've thought about the evolution of venture capital as an industry?
1: Yeah, well, I think evolution has really bifurcated the market. You have true venture capital, which is I'd say where we play in the smaller end, which is small funds, less than hundred million or so that are investing at the very beginning of a company formation. And then you have these firms that still do early stage investing, but the bulk of their capital is gonna be for growth. So in, in helping these companies grow and, and build towards an exit. And growth financing is a very important part of the company journey. It's just from our perspective, it's a different part of the market. So if we're focused on the emerging sector there's a lot of different structures that work because if you invest in an important company at the very early stage and get a big ownership, you have the right to continue investing in that company and, pres- and preserve your ownership all the way through exit usually. So what we've seen emerge are, are a couple of different strategies where there's a pure from the manager's perspective. I just want to do that and I don't want to do the follow-ons. I just want to do the early stage investing and, and that's how I'm going to generate my returns. My funds are smaller and I make it right one check and be done whereas other groups uh, are more creative around structuring and have opportunity funds or they launch SPVs with their LPs or let the LPs just go directly. I'd say there's pros and cons to each of those different ones. From the opportunity fund perspective, now that's a fund that's on your track record as a manager. And you've got a pooled group of portfolio companies that are now in that fund. And vice versa, if you just let the LPs pick, what, what happens if they have a bad experience? Um, are they going to be there for your next fund? So I think managers need to be really careful about how they go about doing that. From our perspective, we like to work with groups who we can speak with, like John said, who get us 80% of the way there, give us the intel on the company, the managers, the people involved, and then we can make our decision and wear our belt and suspenders and do the work to figure out if we want to be a part. And if it doesn't go well, then that's on us. We don't view that as the manager's fault. Whereas if it's an opportunity fund that we've invested in now, we're putting all of our faith in them to make those decisions. That's how we think about different structures in the early stage. And then from a PM perspective on the the large funds, what they really require are multi-billion dollar exits in order to make their models work. And they need to have a really high market share of those multi-billion dollar exits. I don't have a lot of visibility on what goes on in those firms, but my suspicion is that a lot of people will focus on the companies that they believe can be those multi-billion dollar exits. So there's similar to our approach where there's a big aperture for the early stage companies. And then we try to pick the ones that from those portfolios that work and try to concentrate our capital into those winner companies. My guess is that's also happening at these large venture platforms.
0: There's clearly a lot of different ways to make money in venture and different strategies you can be very high ownership. You can be low ownership, but have a diversified portfolio, depending on your fund size. So there's not just one way to make money in venture, but how much do you think venture is a numbers game? Kind of related to your point about having as many shots on goal early on to then funnel into a select number of companies at growth stage that will, as John, like you said earlier, there are going to be certain big trends or big areas that are going to drive massive outcomes. How much do you think venture can truly be distilled down to a numbers game before you even get to specific companies, founders, et cetera? Well, that
2: it is a numbers game in that the more things you see, the more perspective you have. I, I like to say your attention follows your money. One third of our funds go right into these early stage managers. We actually have Money in a thousand startups. We actually are interested in what is there. We are paying attention to what the managers are saying about their portfolios. We're looking to put the other two thirds into the B and C rounds of their breakout companies. So it's having perspective and understanding of where to allocate your own attention and time. We all have the same amount of time. It's a question of your perspective about where to spend it. And this is where the human capital networking aspect is so important. It's understanding who to call to gain time and perspective about a future decision. That is essentially what our job is about. And investing in those early stage managers align us with all these close to company with lots of perspective for things that we need. And we can draw on these other managers to give us views by sector or by just relationships that we have identified they have with people in question. The
1: numbers actually aren't in your favor in venture. Most of the exits that happen in venture backed companies don't end up being that interesting. The name of the game is to try to figure out how to put as little capital into the companies that won't exits for high multiples and as much as you can into the ones that can return meaningful exits back to you and produce realized proceeds. In the end, we're all judged by realized proceeds divided by contributed capital, and we want to make that ratio as high as possible. Our answer to that is, if you strip away the structures, is put a lot of very early stage, essentially no-cost options in hedge fund speak. (laughs) And when those options start to pay out, A, they'll have an impact, but B, we want to try to increase their impact by investing still when we can produce a venture-style return, Usually that's series B and C rounds for us. Sometimes we can go earlier, sometimes later, but the bulk of our direct co-investing happens at at that stage when we can still see a high multiple, but we've minimized the risk of downside. Of course, there's still downside and we might lose our money on a couple of companies, but we've limited that opportunity, but also increased the amount of capital that's flowing into the, the effective winners. But when we think about managers, I want the opposite. I want them to have really high conviction about everything that they've invested in. Of course, we know that some won't work. It's really our job to increase the allocation to those options. So
0: from that perspective, I think strategy often informs how you think about investing. And I'm listening to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is you take a lot of early bets as options on potential winners, and then you invest at series B and C stage into those winners with more capital that can then drive outcomes and larger pools of return of capital. Does that mean you believe that that's the best opportunity in venture right now, where the best risk reward trade is in your mind?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and especially the, those B and C rounds are really hard to raise right now. That's based on the market dynamics. We talked about valuations for 2021. A lot of the companies that raised then are having to come back to market now or over the next 12 to 18 months. And even the ones that have performed and have doubled or tripled in revenue they're looking at a different multiple environment. If you look at public markets, we're back to where we were at the beginning before COVID in tech, but the multiples are more realistic and based in reality. When we look at some of our companies that we've invested in over that period are coming back, they've been performing great, but they're raising it flat or even down rounds. And and so for us, that's a great opportunity to increase our ownership in the companies that we believe in. But also as we look to new companies, finding the the, the ones that are performing that our managers love and still believe can return their funds, we can come into those at a very attractive multiple and valuation right now. And so super excited to be doing that over the next, I'd say, two years is, is where we have this window.
0: On that point as well, how much do you think that what you both mentioned about the barbelling of ventures, so the big platforms becoming much bigger, they have much more capital, they have to deploy in large size and scale, maybe not in that missing middle of B and C rounds in terms of size and scale that, that you could deploy at or you, along with other managers you've invested in, can deploy at. How much do you think that has impacted this strike zone, that kind of B, C range for potential for return relative to the risk? Because there's some traction, obviously, much different than the early stage that your early stage managers are investing in.
2: I, the capital's there. The capital's waiting to be called. It's just collectively, they're just trying to figure out how long this lasts. The risk aversion is very high. I'll say one thing, though, for your listeners who are investors in venture capital firms, the big funds do not care about you. <laughs> Essentially, they really couldn't care less. They might have a meeting, but they really don't want to serve your interests. They're just focused on their business. The funds that we invest in really care about their investors. They need us to raise their next fund. They can be highly you know, benefited from our involvement. I think it's just a point worth mentioning. Without putting in a lot of capital, we have an, an ongoing, enduring impact and a benefit from and attention from our managers. The large funds have well-developed brands, and eventually, if they do poorly, their investors will leave. It'll take quite a while. But there's a very different interaction, I guess I'd say, between the, the two different groups.
0: This is a fascinating point. I want you to talk to me more about this, because what you're getting at, one, is value additive to the manager and their business building endeavors in a number of ways. These smaller managers, they can't necessarily fulfill these larger Series B, Series C checks that you can help them with. You're helping them maintain pro rata, generate returns and carry on partnering with them to do so. And then you're also enabling them to stay smaller as managers, which for LPs should benefit those LPs because they can have smaller funds in the future, but partner with co-investment partners like yourselves. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that is such an important insight for the business building side of venture and for LPs as well. If funds just get bigger, returns change. And now, sir, maybe their LP customers change as well. They go to more larger institutions and they do smaller foundations, family offices, high net worths. But that changes their business model, their strategy, their hiring, all of which make it a very different firm. So you're making it possible for firms to stay the same and do what they do best? I'd love to hear more about that.
2: One thing I would say, Ken can uh, tell you a lot more about this. Coming from the hedge fund world, you would have thought that you would need to negotiate these deals ahead of time. Like, I'm going to invest X amount in your fund, and you're going to give me X amount of any other deals. It's actually not the case at all. It doesn't even relate to how much you invest in the funds. It's really about how value-added you are and how much you can help. That's where the managers want to spend their time with investors. And there's only so many investors who do a 10-year allocation and actually want to put in the time, active time, have perspective, can help. There are very few of those actual investors. We're not really competing against a bunch of other people like us, I would say. So a little capital, our attention, and their attention to us can be very, very productive.
1: And I think the area that you can be, as an LP, the most helpful is getting a manager capital in their fund one. That's the hardest fund of anybody to raise. And to have somebody go out on a limb and say, yes, I believe in you, because really it's about the person in a fund one. They they usually don't have a track record. They don't have an operational history of doing it. What you're doing is you're making a belief that the team or the person can make a a successful fund. We've done that a bunch, invested in first-time funds. And the benefit that you get from those managers is just huge. They're very grateful that you've done that for them. You, and like you said, usually that's their best-performing fund. <laughs> it's because they're the most hungry, the fund's usually the smallest, and that ends up being generally the best-performing fund within a manager's stable of funds. But from our perspective, as long as a manager stays in their strategy to stay relatively small and the strategy makes sense for their new fund size... We want to continue backing them as long as they continue to perform and the relationship is is still very solid. They can grow outside of our size range. We're happy to let them grow if that aligns with their goals. But it just means that we're going to go and find somebody else who we can do a new relationship with and, and back them in the new fund one because that's where we think we get the most value out of.
0: You've both backed managers and fund ones that have done extremely well. Can you back Chris Saka Lowercase at industry, John and can you both back pair very early on. That was incredible fund as well. What advice would you give to first time mon- fund managers who are pitching you?
2: Hmm. I guess I'd say be authentic. Don't copy. Try to match an emerging opportunity with something that you feel right for, connected with, experienced with. I look at it as a matter of life energy it's like, where do you want to direct your life energy for quite a while? And you feel that life energy, at least I I think we do, within an hour of speaking with someone. Do you want to join this person in doing this? Do you believe that this person is going to do this meaningfully, authentically, passionately, diligently? And when you feel that, and when you think that the person is a high value person, generally, you get a lot of good results. And often... The reason people don't join these people is because what they're going after is unfamiliar to the investor. Actually, we like that. We, we like someone who says, here's what I want to do, whether it's a company or a manager. And we see the option value. If we want to pay attention, we're probably going to benefit a lot from it along with our investment.
1: I'd say also that there could be lots of reasons that LPs decide not to work with a new manager that they're raising a first-time fund. One is that they don't do first-time funds. So let's just discard those groups and say, they're not going to be a fit for you. But as a manager, you should stay involved with those and stay up to speed with those LPs that might back you in their future funds. And for the groups that, that do uh, invest in first-time funds that also say no, figure out why. Is it because they didn't have a slot because they were trying to raise a fund or they have another manager that's in the slot? And then make sure to try to stay in touch as you go on and invest your fund. And if hopefully that fund is wildly successful, but usually you won't have a lot of data points for fund two. I said fund one is really hard to raise. Fund two is also really hard to raise because you won't have any exits or maybe you will, that'll be an early exit, but uh, chances are you won't have any exits. And so really it's still about the story but how does that story that you told in fund one relate to the investments that you made in that fund as you go back to fund two? And hopefully there's a lot of alignment with what the story was as you were raising the fund and what you en- ended up investing in. I think that's the biggest mistake that I see when maybe we invest in or pass on a first-time fund is when they're coming back to fund two and we ask, okay, well, show us the companies that you're really excited about in fund one. And one of the first ones is an outlier. It was a later stage investment or it was a, a deal that they didn't get as much ownership as they thought they would with the strategy. And so there's space for outliers, but hopefully the bulk of the the returns and the exciting companies that are involved in a fund one related very closely to the strategy that they set out at the beginning of the, the fundraise.
0: If we flip this question around to the LP side, First-time or second-time fund managers are generally working with the high net worth community, so family offices, individuals, the wealth management channel, yet they they may not necessarily be as systematic in how they're going about investing into early-stage venture because it's hard. It's hard to uncover many of these managers, or like you both say, it's hard to have a systematic way of understanding what makes certain managers great, particularly if they're first-time fund managers. Now, there are certainly allocators within the high net worth channel who have that ability and expertise because they've done it before, or they might have some unique insights or they've made some good investments already. But what would you say to LPs who are looking to first or second time fund managers and how can they do a good job of finding the best managers?
1: I I mentioned that we're looking for people that have access to hard to crack networks. That's really related to sourcing. So the first, first thing you need to figure out is can they source and why is what they can source interesting? You want to figure out that. And then once you've figured out, okay, I believe that they can source and the things that they'll see could be really interesting businesses, then the question is how will they pick? Trying to understand that is hard. I think the best way to do both the sourcing and the picking is by speaking with people they've worked with in the past and doing a lot of reference lists. And then within your own network, try to figure out if people that know the individual or team that you can back channel and figure out if A, you believe they're sourcing and
2: B, you value their ability to pick. It's hard because selling someone, advising someone, you are depending on brand, reputation, data. And these are often things that take many, many years to establish, which generally aren't very helpful for a first time or a second-time fund, as as Ken is saying. So often the, the reason that an LP might allocate is just because they want to do more in venture, and this is the, the thing that's being offered when they want to allocate. It does need to be more systematic. We're actually offering a third going right into early-stage funds that are going to be essentially 1,000 companies. It's hard. It's really hard for an LP to access a diverse group of early-stage funds. It's much more time-consuming for them to go pick 10 to 20 managers. It's very difficult. And it's a reason why more capital doesn't go into the early stage. And it's the early stage that's been the least affected, actually, by the last uh, 18 months of uh, higher rates and, and illiquidity. One thing I
0: want to cover here, venture feels like a great place for fund of funds and or co-investment platforms, probably more so than other corners of private markets. You mentioned that a little bit, but why is that the case? And what's the argument to be made for fund of funds or co-invest platforms over people trying to do this themselves?
1: Let's say that all we do is this. (laughs) I think whether it's working with someone like us or trying to do it yourself, really be honest with the amount of time and attention you're going to spend on it. We think that a emerging manager-focused diversified fund group Coupled with a co-investment platform is a really interesting way to access venture, especially because you're finding these sector experts who can, in, in their own fund, produce a really high return. But then it gives you the information and access to their best companies. I talked a little bit about that before. I think what that does is it bends the risk curve in venture. If you look at the risk curve for any one company, so say that's the highest risk thing that you can do is just to have a portfolio of one early stage startup. Maybe the highest return, but also potential for lowest return as well. You get better on the low end if you have a diversified set of early stage managers, but that also maybe caps the upside because you're maybe overly diverse and each winner doesn't really impact you. What we've done is kind of combine both of those in one platform and and make a really diversified pool of early stage options for a third of our capital and then two thirds for directs. And I think this works in venture, especially at the early stage and the small funds that we're investing in because the small funds we back are less than 100 million in size they invest at the very beginning get their ownership then and then usually their fund size limits their ability to keep investing beyond usually the series b so right when a company is gaining traction You can see that the customers are buying the product and this has the potential to be a really interesting business. It just now needs growth capital to scale. That's when we start to get excited about uh, increasing our concentration to those companies. And we can do that because the small funds that we back, they're not taking allocation right that they have to the allocation in those rounds. So because we can move quickly, because we already know about those companies, we've been tracking them for a long time we're based here in San Francisco and others can do this too but we can move quickly and be a responsible direct investor that the manager feels comfortable introducing us to the CEO in order to take that allocation
2: and being early and quick versus late and reactive is a, is enormously different having perspective it's like having perspective proper perspective versus not understanding and scrambling on what to do
0: i think that's so important That's a great lead-in to a quick fire round that I want to do. I want to ask each of you questions, a few sentences, quick answers on a few different topics, starting with what do you think is the most important edge for an investor in today's world?
2: Uh, Duration is what I would say, if you can actually have and keep your duration and realize the benefit of that.
0: What's the most non-obvious view you have on venture?
2: So originally, I invested just my personal capital, and I did that for 9, 10 years. And a lot of times, I would find a company with a founder I thought was really compelling and wanted to do because I could see it on a long-term basis being inevitable. And yet, I found a a lot of venture firms didn't want to do it. And I came to the conclusion that if you're an early-stage fund, you often will shy away from the shiny object because you don't think it can get the next round. If it's so unfamiliar, you cannot want to do it. Whereas you know, if you have a long-term perspective and you think the founder is the one to do it, it's actually incredibly compelling because they can build a multi-year lead over you know, waiting for it to become a shiny object. So it's a reason why often venture is very, very uneven, very, very uneven. It's not a monolith. It's not like everything's a shiny object. There are many things that are not yet a shiny object, which you want to go after. And the reason is because if you're a first-time manager, you want to have a result within two to three years in order to raise your next fund. So actually realizing why you should be backing things that right now may not be shiny, but later will will be.
0: Interestingly, on that point, you have the same advice for investors that you do for managers, which is duration.
2: Again, if everyone's looking at something, the valuation is going to be higher. The chances it's going to concede is also higher. But one thing people are investing in is the likelihood it's going to get an up round by the time they raise their next fund. Don't minimize that aspect of why money is going into something that is shiny.
1: Yeah, the thing I'd say is patience. There's bright, shiny objects that are non-consensus, and then there's others that are consensus. I've seen the really successful managers take their time and not be so reactive. And that relates to backing companies, but also working with LPs, You want to take the time and be patient to develop the strongest relationships you can. This
0: brings up a really interesting concept or question, because in the hedge fund world, risk and reward and the balance of that matters so much. And you're both in your own way saying that be patient, have duration, be willing to back something that may be risky, but may work. Obviously, there's different products for different LPs. Some are buying more risk, but higher reward. Some are buying lower risk potentially lower reward. How do you think venture managers should think about risk reward?
2: I look at it as a human capital question, not as a tech question. You basically are trying to access the most ambitious, high value, high quality people uh, doing the most challenging things involving other people and who are able to hire and combine other people like that. It's really not like anything else that you invest in. To me, the, the reward is essentially accessing, identifying and getting involved with those people and then holding them. The longer you hold them, the more likely you're gonna benefit. It's definitely a question of slugging average, not batting average to use a familiar concept. But I think LPs need to understand if they do not invest in venture, they are not accessing this highest quality human capital network. And our choices of what we're doing is trying to access that and monitor and pay attention and contribute to that. The the results may be 10 years from now, but it's no question what we're doing is trying to find and be involved with these incredibly ambitious, high-quality, risk-taking people. And, And there's also a portfolio effect. Venture
1: managers need to have the risk that can produce the ultimate reward, and that's balanced by a portfolio that they build. Then there's the other consideration around sizing. So maybe something that's more binary in terms of it's either going to be a huge success or it's going to be a dramatic failure, ultimate zero or 100x. There's a place in a portfolio for those. And there's also a place in the portfolio for things that are more bounded on the downside and the upside. And then it's a question of sizing around how big you want to make those binary bets versus the more balanced ones.
0: If you think about where human capital flows will be in the next five to 10 years, Right now, where do you think that will go?
2: It's a a good question because California and San Francisco is in flux. New York is in flux. I think it's a good thing for the United States to have this dispersion of high-quality people finding other areas as tech diversifies into all these different sectors, which are not obviously all in California or New York. I'd say that the enduring thing is the culture that was created and that was recognized to work in Silicon Valley and San Francisco. Essentially the identification, the valuing, the pricing of human capital is essentially what the West Coast did. That is the winning strategy in a world where the cost of of IP keeps falling and falling and falling. The, the you you have to have access to that. That culture is winning. I think you have to look at it by sectors, not just by geographies. 100% of the GDP of the United States is spread around the United States. Question is, like, what will Miami be like in 10 years? I think Austin, you can be more comfortable to say that it's developed a lot, and it's going to develop a lot in the next 10 years. Places like Colorado are places that you know, there's more venture. It's always changing, however. It was never going to stay the same, but we can see it much more clearly right now.
1: I'd just say that this remote experiment that we've really accelerated through COVID has stuck in a lot of places and a lot of places it's shown to be problematic. And I'd say that for really high performing teams, there's a lot of value in being together wherever that is. So I think we'll see, you know, certainly an aspect of remote as companies scale, there's value in remote engineering or product development or things like that. But at the management level, There's just an ultimate need for people to be together in person. And so wherever that is, I think a lot of the AI companies we're seeing start to be built together in Hayes Valley and San Francisco again. So I think these things can change over time, but ultimately we're still bullish on the Bay area as a a locus of entrepreneurship and tech. I think it's going to be hard for that to be displaced over time.
2: On a more broader basis, what we're seeing, there is no challenge to the United States. There's development in Latin America. We see it with fintech. We see obviously winners in a variety of places. We are seeing the shutting down of China, the the, the involvement of uh, of uh, U.S. venture in China. You saw what happened with Sequoia, for instance. There is no question. In as much as many of us are abhorrent of what's going on politically in the United States, there is no question the United States is going to be the leader, or the winner. It's not going to change. The attraction of highest quality people who cluster together to create companies. It's the United States is, is, the, is the winner. Yes, there are winners in other places. But anyway, do not let your own macro negative view of what's happening in the U.S. discourage you from investing in the best people in the world.
0: On that point, related to the last question as well, do you think that other places or regions of the world can create the human capital advantage that Silicon Valley once did, and does that make those places undervalued?
2: For companies, you can have really high standards and attract the best people to work in those companies, but there probably aren't going to be very many of those companies in those areas, because there's no saturation of these people who have the experience, understanding, culture, energy, training, whatever. and. What has ended up happening in America, for instance, you have just an ongoing, the best people around the world go to cities and countries where they can monetize themselves the best. But I think what's happened is public markets have demonstrated, oh, these are the winners. Oh, this is who you should copy. And it's been brought back to wherever they are. And But in no way would I make it an equivalence of... Silicon Valley in size and scale and magnitude to anywhere else. I don't know when we're going to be able to do that, if ever. I I guess California California could screw it up enough for the next 10 years to discourage people from doing it, but probably not.
0: I want to wrap this podcast with one final question that I always ask every guest, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment, and what lessons did you learn from it? So I'd like to ask each of you that question.
2: John, you got to say the Warriors, right? (laughs) Well, okay. That's an interesting one. So in 2010, I got an opportunity to invest in the Warriors and it was the highest price ever paid for a basketball team. There had been no price for six years. 2004, the Suns traded. And I looked at it not because, oh my gosh, I really want to invest in a basketball team. I I looked at it as a question of what can go right, not at the price. And I thought what could go right was, was terribly managed. They could manage it much better they could move it to San Francisco and China loves basketball. The world is becoming basketball oriented. It's on the West coast. I thought it could benefit from a a world trend. And then I thought there's all these positive externalities if I invest in it, but I don't know what they are. And so what I learned from this is, um, I like to say you should invest in the best things and the newest things. Um, and often the best things are priced in a way that discourage you from approaching it. Um, but the best things have a habit of doing extremely well over time. And you may not understand it, but generally the best things are what the world (laughs) quests for and lusts for. And I was right about those three things, yet the starting price discouraged so many people from investing.
0: I have to break the rules on my way I asked my last question, just ask two follow-ups because I think they're very important follow-ups to ask. One is the concept that you just mentioned about sometimes the the value of the best things are higher than you think they should be, so therefore you are discouraged from investing. How do you think about the interplay between the price that you may pay for something that may seem high and the value? And how do you shift your mind to then move away from this is too highly valued and will still have more value in the future?
2: Well- the the reality is the winners are going to win and paying 2x the price you paid for a winner is something that you won't feel too badly about with duration ken wouldn't have felt bad in retrospect paying 5x the price he paid for chris saka's first fund
1: well i was going to say my favorite thing that i've invested in in the alt space has got to be the lowercase family and specifically uber So when you mentioned that we uh, backed Chris Saka when he formed his first fund, Lowercase One, well, between when he had Lowercase One and when he raised his second fund called Spur, a bunch of these companies that he backed were coming back with follow-on rounds and Uber's Series B, he didn't have the money in his funds to participate in, in that. So he called us up and asked us if we wanted to do his pro rata and ultimately we said yes, but it was it was hard to do. It was really hard to pay the price uh, that we had to pay at the Series B because they had about, I think it was $3 million of run rate and we were paying 100 times run rate, um, something like that. But if you looked at their cities that they were going to launch and the potential for future revenue, y- you just had to be a part of it. So we said yes, and ultimately that had a huge impact on our funds at the time. Yeah, I think I'd echo John's comment around the best things even if they're overpriced or they look overpriced, the value, the intrinsic value will always be there.
0: That's a fantastic way to end this podcast. Great conversation. Thanks so much, John and Ken, for for coming on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast and sharing your wisdom.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack. altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael Stidgemore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-